Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 136, The Russo-Turkish War, Part 3. First, although it's been a very short time since I recorded the last episode, we do have a new patron, Dmitry Yordanov, so a big thanks to you, Dmitry. Now, let's get into it. Last time, we began with the Russian army, firmly established south of the Danube River, and the beginning of intense fighting to hold on for the Shipka Pass and to prevent Ottoman forces from crossing it and entering the Russian central and rear areas. After days and weeks of intense fighting by Russians and Bulgarian volunteers, the pass held. Elsewhere, Romania and Serbia both formally entered the war as the Russians mounted intense and bloody attacks on entrenched Ottoman forces around Pleben. Ultimately, after far more effort than anyone expected would be needed, Pleben was taken, both showing that the Ottoman army was stronger than most foreign observers thought, and that this strength would not be enough to turn the tide of the war. Soon, Russian units began moving in to take Sofia and advancing towards Plovdiv and Adrianople as they liberated town after town. We wrapped up with the Ottomans formally discussing peace and requesting British mediation while the Austro-Hungarians re-proclaimed their continued opposition to the establishment of a larger Bulgarian state, while the British reminded the Russians not to dare take control of Constantinople or the Straits. So, As the military aspect of the war is gradually drawing to a close, the diplomatic fights over the peace are ramping up. And again, that is where we left off, with the year 1877 drawing to a close. It was a year of tremendous achievements for Bulgarian revolutionaries, as well as profound losses for the thousands who died or lost their homes. As if to commemorate this, the year also saw Ivan Vazov publish a book of poetry entitled the sorrows of Bulgaria. Now, the first day of 1878 saw the Sultan personally telegram the Tsar of Russia asking for peace. The military situation made it clear why. The Ottomans were withdrawing from Pazurjik as the Russians liberated Cherpan and Dupnitsa, while the independent Bulgarian squads operating around Macedonia took Kustendil. This was soon followed by Slivan and Harmanli, and on the 4th, General Gurko entered Plovdiv, a conquering hero. Surging ahead of the Russian forces were retreating Ottomans, moving into the Rdopi Mountains and towards Adrianople, as well as around 150 to 200,000 Turkish refugees. A column of 30,000 of these refugees, accompanied by some Ottoman soldiers, was encountered by advancing Russian units. Soon, the Ottomans set fire to a bridge over the Maritza River and used carts from the refugees to block the road. This surprised the Russians, as the Sultan had just asked for peace and an armistice seemed imminent, and so they really didn't expect much resistance. The Russian forces received an order to clear the road so they could advance to Adrianople. Now, at this point, there are two versions of events. In one, the Russians are shot at by the Ottomans, who burnt down a Christian village. In the competing Ottoman version, the Russians ruthlessly attacked the refugees and massacred them. 
Now, there were also some reports of local Bulgarians participating in attacks on refugees, but regardless of who shot first, we do know that there were some, some large-scale killings of Turkish refugees around Harmanli during this time. On the kinder side, though, once General Skobolev arrived on the scene after the damage was done, he ensured the surviving refugees were brought to Harmanli and given care. But as things were getting ugly around Harmanli, the diplomatic situation was also evolving. Russia offered Britain its assurances that it would not conquer Constantinople or even temporarily occupy it. And as a result, the British government decided that it was not necessary to send its navy to the region. As the Ottomans retreated even further, abandoning Adrianople itself on the 5th, the Russian emperor wrote to his German and Austro-Hungarian counterparts, informing them that the peace he was about to negotiate directly with the Ottomans would merely be preliminary, and that a final peace would only be made based on consultation with the great powers, including them, of course. Thus, as the Russians quickly moved through Bulgaria towards Constantinople in January, the Russian government had effectively placated the three great powers which mattered the most, Britain, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. However, Britain's position was not as simple as it appeared. There was also tremendous infighting within its cabinet, which, along with the lack of a strong continental ally in its position to preserve the great to preserve the Ottoman Empire, all this prevented the British from doing very much to stop the Russian advance. The Russians, for their part, were dragging their feet with negotiations, fully aware that with each passing day, their military advantage grew. Alarmed by the situation, the British repeatedly attempted to coordinate with the Austro-Hungarians, who were also in favor of the status quo in the Balkans, minus them possibly taking Bosnia and Herzegovina. However, neither power was willing to kind of step out ahead and lead such an initiative, though each was basically willing to follow, and so they failed to agree on joint actions to help prop up the Ottomans. Now, two days after all this, Ottoman representatives arrived at the Russian headquarters as Russian forces reached the Rudopi Mountains and liberated Asenovgrad before progressing further towards the Ottoman capital by taking Khaskovo. A day later, the first Russian units reached Adrianople, only four days after having reached Plovdiv. And for context, if you wanted to walk that distance and sleep eight hours a night, it would take you the better part of three days now. So clearly, there was very little stopping the, Russia, the Russians as they moved towards the retreating enemy. However, despite the rapid gains being made by the Russians, the Ottomans soon broke off negotiations as the Russians moved to concentrate their forces in Adrianople and prepare to make a final advance towards Constantinople. Hearing of the near collapse of Ottoman resistance, the British government changed its policy and sent the British Navy to Constantinople to ensure the city would be protected from the Russians. However, as I mentioned, the British cabinet was rife with inviting, and the order was soon rescinded, both to prevent major resignations within the government and because the Ottomans had actually refused to allow the British passage. Now, I couldn't find any details as to why the Ottomans refused, but one thing was clear. The Ottomans did not feel like they could rely on the British to protect their interests by this point, leaving them even more isolated. Likely after seeing that the British were quite unable to enforce their demands that the Russians stay away from the city, Tsar Alexander subsequently approved a proposal to march on the Ottoman capital itself. 
Count Ignatiev, was proposing terms for peace and began moving from St. Petersburg down to the front lines so he could oversee the end of the war and help negotiate the peace in person. However, remember that much of the Balkans was still in Ottoman hands despite the Russian advance towards Constantinople. The Ottomans were still in control of Ruse, Razgrad, and Dobrich in southern Dobrija and were now concentrating troops there. They were also still holding the fortress at Vinin, where Romanian troops were now bombarding it. Meanwhile, the Russians were making further gains in Thrace and progressing more towards the Ottoman capital. Finally, after yet more advances and taking more important towns, on the 18th of January, Ottoman representatives informed the Russian high command that they would unconditionally accept the preliminary peace terms offered by the Russians in exchange for an armistice. The treaty signed in Adrianople in the next days set out a few key terms. The Bulgarian state, which would be established, would cover the territory of the two autonomous regions which had been decided at in the Constantinople Conference, so a fairly small Bulgarian state, and this state would remain within the Ottoman Empire and pay tribute to the Ottoman government. That said, the Bulgarian state would be allowed a national militia. Serbia, Montenegro, and Romania would all be made or remain fully independent, while Bosnia and Herzegovina would become another autonomous region within the Ottoman Empire, as we'll learn much of the chagrin of the Austro-Hungarians. The Ottomans were also basically required to begin reforms in their European provinces, withdraw from key military positions, and pay a large war indemnity to the Russians. But a more comprehensive agreement on the Straits and the Bosphorus was set to be decided later. Now, in exchange for agreeing to all this, all Russian and Bulgarian troops were ordered to cease offensive operations. Ignatiev was still on his way, and on the day this was agreed to, he arrived in Bucharest and spoke with King, sorry, Prince Carol about the Russian proposal to retake southern Bessarabia in return for Romania obtaining northern Dobruja. However, shortly afterwards, the Romanian parliament made it clear that it intended to keep southern Bessarabia and would not accept such a proposal. Both sides would have to basically see what the final peace terms would be to know the final status of those two territories. However, despite the ceasefire, basically the armistice with the Ottomans, fighting did continue. On the 20th, a cheta led by Paniot Hitov and Zhelyo Voivoda fought with Ottoman irregulars near Slivan. The Russians were also now sweeping down the Black Sea coast, liberating towns on the way to Burgas. Elsewhere, the citizens of Gorna Jamia, modern Blagovgrad, a city where I used to live, in Pirin, Macedonia, made a formal plea to the Russian military governor in Sofia to allow his troops to move further south and liberate their city as well. At the moment, Russian and Bulgarian forces had liberated as far south as Dupnica and Kustendil, and Gorna Jamia was basically the next major settlement on the way. Soon, other Macedonian settlements would issue similar pleas and ask not to be separated from Bulgaria in a future peace settlement. But the main fighting at this point was obviously political. The British government again ordered its navy to travel to Constantinople to protect British subjects there, even if it wasn't going to get permission from the Sultan's government. In response, the Tsar ordered his soldiers to enter the city to prevent British soldiers from disembarking there, effectively escalating tensions between British Britain and Russia. 
However, the commander of Russian forces delayed entering the city because he was in favor of peace and he knew how much this action would escalate the, the situation and make obtaining a final peace that much more difficult. So, while the British Navy did enter the Straits without Ottoman permission, Ignatiev proposed, and the high command accepted, that the Russian army would advance only so far as the Constantinople suburb of San Stefano, only about 11 kilometers from the city center. This sort of got the best of both worlds, where the Russians were just outside the city and able to enter it within hours, but technically not entering it and thus not provoking a British response and sort of escalating tensions. Meanwhile, the Austro-Hungarians were even angrier than the British about the preliminary peace because, well, it furthered the pan-Slavic goals in the Balkans and made it more difficult for Austria-Hungary to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, despite the previous agreements. So, Austria-Hungary proposed an international conference in Vienna to decide the final peace terms. However, within a few days, it was clear that proposal wasn't going to be taken up, and so the Austro-Hungarians proposed holding it in Berlin instead. Within a few days, Otto von Bismarck gave a speech to the Reichstag, announcing his desire to be a mediator at the upcoming Congress. Now, the other Balkan states were also kind of shocked and dismayed by the terms of that preliminary armistice agreement between Russia and the Ottomans. Under it, Serbia was to receive a fraction of the territory it wanted, fewer than 400 square kilometers, while Russia-favored Montenegro was to triple in size. Then there was the Greeks. Remember, the Greeks had been absent from matters during the entire war. They were close to the British, basically British allies, and the British had pushed them not to get involved for obvious reasons. In addition, the Greeks knew that their army was really in no state to fight at the moment, something the Serbs probably should have realized. But when they were not even invited to the Constantinople Congress, the Greeks began to worry intensely. Remember, Russia did ask Greece to intervene in the war, but they hesitated, still concerned about those two factors I just mentioned. But basically, being completely shut out of the peace process that was seeming likely to completely reshape the Balkans, this was terrifying and unacceptable to the Greeks. Now, by the time the Russians were practically knocking at the gates of Constantinople's Theodosian walls, popular pressure within Greece to intervene was reaching a fevered pitch. People, again, were deeply concerned that Greek territorial demands were going to be ignored in favor of those made by their Slavic neighbors. King George was now seriously worried he might lose his throne over this, and so he mobilized the army and moved it to the Ottoman border. Unfortunately for him, this was unconstitutional and triggered its own new internal crisis. Now, as negotiations were underway in San Stefano, Greece finally made its decision. It began to incite revolts against the Ottomans in Thessaly, Epirus, and Macedonia before declaring that its troops needed now to cross into Ottoman territory to protect local Christians from reprisals from the revolts they just incited. Problem was, all this happened literally the day before the armistice was signed between the Ottomans and the Russians, and so when that happened, Greece had to quickly withdraw its forces, and, well, essentially they looked pretty stupid. Because just like that, Greece had managed to anger its British allies by getting involved in the war against the Ottomans while doing basically nothing to ingratiate themselves to the Russians because they, and, you know, they joined the fighting on the literal last day and thus played no part in the victory. Greece now faced the prospect of entering peace negotiations 
without a friend in sight. But just what those negotiations would look like was still being considered. Meanwhile, peace negotiations were beginning in person between the Russians and the Ottomans, with Count Ignatiev finally there in person, representing the Russians. Again, knowing how much the political situation would soon escalate, Russian high command demanded Ignatiev sign a peace agreement as soon as possible, effectively giving him just over a week to finish the job. So, in essence, the Russians were now switching from delaying peace so they could have a better military situation to being concerned about escalating political tensions and trying to wrap this all up as soon as possible. Soon, though, a large wrench was thrown into the works. When an Ottoman representative retracted his government's agreement to the preliminary Russian peace terms. Following this, the Ottoman parliament was disbanded and the Russians sent them an ultimatum to come to San Stefano and begin new peace talks there. Soon, negotiations began as the Russians finally liberated Gorna Jamia and the Romanians took Vidin and Belgradchik. However, soon into these negotiations, the Ottomans decided to end them. The same day, Russia gave its consent for the Berlin Congress to be held in a few months for a final peace to be agreed upon. Now the next day, the Russians made a show of force to remind the Ottomans that if they weren't willing to continue negotiations, then Constantinople would be occupied. This worked, and talks resumed. Finally, on the 19th of February, or 3rd of March, depending on your calendar, the Treaty of San Stefano was finally signed. Somewhat ironically, the Russian general in charge of administering Bulgaria died on the same day, but, well, the treaty was the big news. Even those who had found the terms of that preliminary armistice surprising were shocked. One could say that uh, San Stefano was divisive. That might be an understatement. Now, for many Bulgarians and Panslavs, this was a godsend. The treaty promised more than they had ever hoped and seemed to mark the beginning of a new era. For many more, this was a terrifying document which could not be allowed to remain in force. But what was so shocking about it? To begin, it established an enormous Bulgarian state, stretching from the Black Sea into what is now Albania, including bits of what are now southern Serbia and much of what is now northern Greece. Importantly, it also included two stretches of Aegean coastline on which naval bases could be established. Importantly, these could possibly be Russian naval bases, which is what freaked everyone out so much. Now, under the terms, Bulgaria was to be nominally under Ottoman sovereignty and pay them an annual tribute, but functionally it would be independent, much like Romania at this point. It would also have an army, draft a constitution, and elect a monarch, which would then be approved by the great powers. Montenegro was to be fully independent and nearly double in size, as the Russians again were really favoring Montenegro over Serbia at this point. Serbia, for its part, would again only receive a small portion of the territory it desired. The Romanians would gain full independence and again would be essentially forced to receive northern Dobruja in exchange for the Russians taking back southern Bessarabia, which, remember, they had lost after the Crimean War. Instead of war reparations, Russia would annex many Armenian and Georgian lands in the Caucasus, and the remaining Ottoman European territories, including Bosnia and Herzegovina, would again gain more autonomy. Lastly, it decided that in the Straits, the Bosphorus Straits would be open to neutral shipping at all times. Now, 
Remember, Russia had promised Austria-Hungary that it would not establish a large Slavic state, which could potentially become a Russian puppet dominating the region. Yet, Russia had just done exactly that. Russia had also promised Austria-Hungary a free hand in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but that territory was now to remain under the Ottomans and become more autonomous, which would make Austrian meddling in a way harder. Now, in theory, the British might have been happy that the Russians hadn't decided to take Constantinople, but that was that sort of paled in comparison to how upset they were that Russia was expanding its power so dramatically in the Balkans and that the what they presumed would be Russian-dominated Bulgaria would be so close to Constantinople. And so in British eyes, yes, the Russians wouldn't control the city, but they might as well. They could seemingly take it at any time. Now, all that is to say, San Stefano was completely and utterly unacceptable to the Austro-Hungarians and British. The irony that this fact should have been made clear to the Russians, yet they did it anyways. I mean, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone that the Austro-Hungarians and British reacted this way. Now, for Bulgarians, San Stefano meant many things. For one, it undoubtedly served to unite the Bulgarian sort of independence movement by giving it a singular goal, maintaining San Stefano Bulgaria. However, the pursuit of this goal, as we'll see over the next couple years, really, will have tragic consequences. Now, there's it's really hard to deny that San Stefano was a blunder for the Russians. Although the Russians were always clear that this was a preliminary agreement, it was full of elements which infuriated the other great powers. Russia had overplayed its hand, and now, being utterly exhausted by the war with the Ottomans, Russia knew it didn't stand a chance in a potential war against Britain, Germany, and Austria-Hungary over the peace terms. So, yes, Russia was seemingly in a good sort of negotiating position, being triumphant, but really their position was not as strong as it may appear. But knowing that things were not looking good for them at the upcoming Berlin conference, Russia was now attempting to get ahead of things by conducting secret negotiations with the European powers. They first attempted such negotiations with Austria-Hungary, but the Austro-Hungarians asked for very harsh conditions as they were pretty wary about being betrayed again by the Russians. So the Russians turned to Britain, where they had greater success. The two powers concluded a secret agreement which stipulated that Bulgaria would not have any territory on the Aegean Sea, thus preventing the establishment of Russian naval bases in the Mediterranean. The British also concluded an agreement with the Ottomans in which they were to be given Cyprus in exchange for guaranteeing Ottoman territory in Asia, i.e. every bit of Ottoman territory not in Europe. So this is how the British basically initially got a hold of Cyprus, if you're wondering. Now, when they learned about the Russo-British agreement, the Austro-Hungarians sought their own agreement with Britain, lest the Russians obtain support to act against them at the upcoming conference. In essence, the Austro-Hungarians were worried that uh, they might not be isolated. So, they quickly concluded an agreement which left open the possibility of Austria-Hungary expanding its influence into the Balkans. Thus, taking all these diplomatic moves together, we can basically read that before it even began, most of the results of the Congress of Berlin were basically agreed to. And a bit short, but that's where we're going to finish today. It's taken the better part of a year and a half to go from the Sultan asking for peace uh, to the war finally ending at San Stefano. 
During that time, Russian forces liberated vast swaths of territory, occasionally leading to violence like the massacre in Harmanli. But the major events were diplomatic, as Russia, the Balkan states, and other great powers all jockeyed desperately for position as a final peace agreement approached. Now, San Stefano came as a shock to nearly everyone, but already the outlines of the treaty which will replace it were being agreed to. Next time, in the last regular episode of Season 6, we'll cover the Treaty of Berlin and the general aftermath of the bloody Russo-Turkish War. Afterwards, I'll do the usual recap of episodes before moving on to cover the new semi-independent third Bulgarian state. And again, this episode's a bit short because I felt like, you know, I didn't want to cover the Congress of Berlin and the treaty and everything in the last little five minutes. I thought that deserved basically its own episode. So that will be coming in the next coming weeks and, well, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And well, I'll see you guys next time.